Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 135 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we discussed the growing importance of video conferencing and outlined some of our best ideas for doing better video conferences. In this episode, we wanted to share some ideas on getting up to speed on a a new topic, be it technology or anything else, quickly by using technology tools to learn the new subject. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be talking about uh, how you can accelerate the way that you learn about things using technology. In our second segment, we'll discuss the continued abuse of the reply all function in email. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our first segment and main topic, and that's accelerated learning. It uh, it probably happens to all of us. I know it happens to me. Uh, from time to time, we get asked to give a speech. We get asked to meet with somebody. And it's not a topic that we just don't know enough about. I've, I've, I've been asked to give webinars um, in the past where I didn't feel like I was an expert or I didn't know enough about the subject to be able to talk about it. Um, fortunately, I think there are these days, uh, there, there are a lot of options that are online and other places that can help get you up to speed on a topic in a relatively short period of time. Um, Dennis, you you came to me with this topic, so I'm guessing that something must have happened to raise the topic in your mind. Did you uh, agree to speak on a new topic, or was there something else that led you to want to talk about this topic? Well, there were two things, Tom. So one one is big and, and one is, is small, but both of them illustrate to me the importance of, of using technology to, to learn new things. And so the fir- the big one, I'd sort of pre-announced that I'm switching jobs at, at MasterCard and I'm uh, you know, still in the law department, but I'm, I'm going to cover emerging payments and, and mobile solutions. Uh, and so I'll, I'll shift over to a different group in the, in the law department. Congratulations. And so that means I, I have to learn a bunch of new acronyms and, uh, and sort of a new technology base and, and some new approaches to things, plus learning a, a whole new group. So that sort of got me thinking about how do you learn big new things that uh, both in a short time and over a longer time. And the, the second one is, is something that I've, I think I mentioned in the last podcast was that had a, uh, my wife's computer had a hard drive go out and I needed to figure out what to do with that and uh, get a new hard drive and install it. And so just the learning how to do that, because uh, that's not something that I've done for many years, I would say, um, also made me think about how sometimes you just need to, to learn something really quickly, um, almost in a sort of just-in-time manner. And it's not something that you need to retain. You just need to figure out how to do something quickly uh, because you need to do it and you're probably not going to be doing it over and over again. So those were the the things that led me to think about this time because uh, it made me think there are these different ways and there's so much available now from audio to video to 
to ebooks to to articles to presentations out there to online classes just all sorts of of different things just this almost an explosion in the last few years um, and then uh, my daughter tonight was talking about how she was using an app of which I think is called Duolingo right. uh, to to learn a little bit of Italian and she was really enthused about how you how that app worked and even after she'd just been using it for for a day or so 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 it's really amazing how much is out there and it I think it really caters to this notion of uh, both what do you need to learn sort of how quickly do you need to learn and how do you actually learn best be, and, and then which method might work best for what it is that you want to learn so I, I think it's a really fascinating time for learning we've sort of gone beyond just the days of of uh, looking for things on the internet because there's so many things you can find and so many different ways to learn things. Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of different ways to learn things. And I think that that when you initially discussed this topic, you were talking about getting up to speed on something quickly. And I think that, frankly, which method you use and which means of education that you use is really going to depend on the context of what you need to learn and when you need to learn it. Because, uh, you know, there are, like you said, um, you can go from audio to video, you can get podcasts, you can get uh, um, audiobooks, um, all sorts of things that you can, in different formats, um, I- I- including what I guess we call these massive open online courses. I guess they call them MOOCs. I- I'm not sure if that's the, if, if I'm saying it right or not, but uh, these unlimited participation, open access courses that are being taught by um, lots of universities, some major, some not so major universities, but um, but you know, real professors at real universities teaching online. But I I think it depends on the context of, like I said, what you need to learn and when you need to learn it. And and as you're describing all of these different things that that people are using, I've used Duolingo. I like it a lot. Do I like it as much as I liked Rosetta Stone for learning online uh, because I was using their online tool? I don't know. Um, But when you describe that, the one thing that it raised to me is is, um, a quality level. We've got lots and lots of you know educational sources and there's really not a limitation on who can put that information out there uh, and and so my question, and I come back when we talk about how do you get started with um, with doing this. Uh, one of the questions you have to ask is how can you trust, and what kind of level of trust do you have with the educational source that you have? I, I I know that in the in in the outline for this, we talk about getting started with with Google or Wikipedia. If, if I want to learn a little bit more about a topic, um, I I will say that I would go first. I've actually would go to Wikipedia. You know, I I typically don't use it as a source. I, I, I would do it occasionally, but I typically don't use it, although I know a lot, of, a lot of people and increasingly a lot of courts who use it as a source. But I find that Wikipedia is a great starting point for me to get a basic understanding on a topic. Um, I understand it's reasonably accurate. Um, and, and what I find is nice about the, the Wikipedia entries is, is that they will have sources at the bottom that can lead you to more in-depth coverage of a topic that you're usually getting. So, so I, if I'm going to, if I just want to go and find something 
real quick. Um, I have to, I start with Wikipedia. Again, I take it with a grain of salt. I'm not going to just take what they say there as being uh, automatically uh, accurate. Um, and, and that's, I think, an important thing that we need to talk about or at least keep in mind as we have this discussion is um, what's the quality of the sources that you're choosing to learn from? Right, and and I, I I think it's good to talk about starting with Google versus Wikipedia because uh, as I've tried to learn some new things, I also find that I'm I'm lean toward Wikipedia to get started just for the overview, um, to give me some starting points, to give me basic definitions, uh, to kind of get me pointed in the right right place. With Google, I you know lately when I'm looking for something really specific. It's, it seems like it's harder to find that, and I sort of, when I see the results page, I, I sort of feel like I'm seeing people's SEO strategies at work, and, and sometimes it seems like you really have to fight to find things that that you want that are sort of basic introductions. Um, and I have a few ways that that I work around that, you know, using Google. But I think starting with Wikipedia. Understanding it's like you said, Tom. All the stuff about learning is got to use. You got to think critically. You got to consider the sources. Uh, you know, YouTube might be great. Uh, you know, to find a video to show you how to take out a hard drive and put a new hard drive in. I'm not really sure that it's something I just want to grab a YouTube video. You know, to work on on my gas furnace. You know, for example. <laughs> you know, I mean. So you need to kind of. Th- Think that through. So what I find is that I do. I start out where I'm. I'm going, but I. F- I find lately, and I've mentioned. I know I mentioned on the podcast. A lot of times, if I want to learn something, I go to iTunes and look for a podcast on the uh, by somebody who's well known on the topic, um, because I. I listen to that on my commute. That's a really significant part of the way that I learn things now. So audio is very important to me. If I want to learn, uh, get a good overview. About something, I also like to find uh, slides that people have done from a presentation. So uh, you can do a Google search and, and use a .ppt as part of your search. That will help you pull up uh, slides. Also, a site like SlideShare will help you do that. Um, and so I'm a big on the audio side, and that could include audiobooks, iTunes University, uh, and some of the lectures out there, TED Lectures, The Long Now, great courses, uh, which is good uh, if you want to to buy uh, great lectures on, on different college topics. So those are the ways that I, I lean to get me into things fairly quickly. I don't know, Tom, what's your approach? Actually, <laughs> my approach is pretty basic, although I haven't there hasn't been much that I've had to get up to speed on lately or, or, or to learn. I mean, I've recently became certified in, I think I've mentioned on the podcast, I can't remember, uh, became certified in European privacy. I'm now getting, I'm working on getting my certification in U.S. privacy and learning for that's pretty basic. I, I have a textbook uh, that I'm required to read. Um, they have uh, either an in-person course if you happen to be in a city that gives it or they can do something online which really just turns out to be a PowerPoint with someone's voice 
It's expensive and pretty worthless all at the same time. Um, so it's pretty basic. Uh, I, I find that doing that learning is nothing really that special. I, um, while I will use Wikipedia to uh, to get a basic overview on a specific topic, I still do use Google. Although I will say that if I'm searching on a specific topic, usually it's that Wikipedia entry that's number one in Google, which I think is interesting. But uh, you know, this past week uh, I was researching uh, for my job. You know, how much time is wasted uh, searching for documents? How much time does the average worker waste on a daily basis, on a weekly, on a yearly basis uh, looking for documents? And um, I would say I share your frustration with Google to a certain extent, although I found some things that were interesting. I typically will use that if I'm looking for a topic on that particular subject. Where you go to podcasts, I will go to blogs. I will find a blog on a subject that interests me, that I want to learn more about. I'll subscribe to that blog and just wait for, hopefully, the educational goodness to, to come through. I am, I, I'm skeptical about, uh, I'm a little skeptical about PowerPoint slides and, and going to sites like SlideShare. Um, if only because I find that a lot of presentations kind of follow um, the way that you like to give a presentation, Dennis, and that's a lot of images and not a lot of text, which um, make for great presentations, but they make for lousy educational resources. And so I'm, I, I'm hoping that if I find a PowerPoint, it's going gonna, it's gonna to violate all the rules of PowerPoint that you think are, are bad and, and that are going to have a lot of text in them. You know, I am, it's interesting that you've identified this as a topic because just two or three days before that, I was reading a Life Hacker uh, article on um, sort of introducing the fall term of online university. And it really goes after some of those online college things that, that you mentioned. I, I know the, the great courses they charge. I'm not sure about some of the others, but but the, the MOOC, the Massive Open Online Courses, all, most all of them are free. And I was looking at them. They, you know, Coursera is one. Academic Earth is another. There's one called EDX. Sailor Academy. They're just a few examples. I'll put them all in the show notes. One of the sites that I thought was really interesting is one called Class Learning, or excuse me, ClassCentral.com. Um, it's an aggregator. It aggregates all of those courses from all of those sites um, and then takes you to them. I- I'm so curious about it. I haven't taken a course like this before. I found three or four courses all at once that that interested me, and I signed up for all of them. I hope that if I if I don't have the time to drop to take them and to study, I can drop out without uh, without too much embarrassment but uh, but it's it's a lot of work I mean the co- courses that I that I signed up for the workload is somewhere between two to six hours per week which you know depending on your your ability and your time at, at in the evenings or on the weekends may wind up being more time for these types of courses but I would say that these are not really getting up to speed quickly type courses these are uh, three to six to sometimes even full semester 16 week courses um, where you can watch a video and they have interactive tests, and uh, and and they show uh, the professors are actually showing things and demonstrating them. I think a really interesting way to learn. I mean, going back to school basically, but uh, for free and without the the same level of pressure that you had uh, uh, when you were back in college. Well, and I think that we're we've sort of illustrated the breadth of all these these learning tools. And I, I think you're right that if you look at long term, then the courses make sense uh, because they're going to take a while and they're going to get you into a topic in a, in a very deep way. Um, a lot of times you want to do something where you just need to learn a little something fast 
I, you know, sometimes you just need bluffers knowledge, right? Cause you know, just enough exactly. that you can, you can yeah. sort of hold your own in a conversation. Um, and other times you need to learn a pretty significant amount, but in a short period of time, I've been thinking in, in the sense of what I call agile learning. So there's this sort of agile approach to, to projects these days that where you do things in sort of two week sprints. And so I, I think you can see some of the things you're going to do where you're going to, I need to learn something and it could be the subject matter of a, of a case for a lawyer. It could be something in e-discovery. It could be, you know, other things or, you know, you're changing some aspect of, of the field that you're in or you're learning about a client, that sort of thing. And you're going to say, it really is going to happen in a short, relatively short period of time of, of days to weeks. And, and you're going to look at a couple of different types of things. Like I said, that you want that overview sense. You also may learn, uh, may want to learn some things that are really almost in the nature of, of memorization and things like that. And there are tools out there that will, will help on that. Tell me, I want to use one example that I think both you and I run into, and it's something that I'll run into, which is I call the, you know, learning the org chart, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, where you say, uh, if I'm shifting the groups that I'm working with, then I want to learn really quickly the formal org chart, which may take some memorization, frankly, until I actually meet the people. And then over a longer period of time, I want to learn the informal org chart and who I need to talk to. But I think. When you work with new clients, you probably have some aspect of that too, where you say, I just need to learn the names and how they fit together. Well, that's true. And I find that my best, when I need to learn something quickly, um, it's not always something that I'm going to need to retain for long periods of time, although I hope that I do retain it. Uh, but I find that my best, <laughs> my best learning in that, that circumstance occurs when I kind of uh, cram it all in right before I need to do it. So uh, it, 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 like I said, there have been some webinars where I've been asked to give a, a speech on a topic, and I, I basically took the week beforehand to just kind of cram all that to do my research and to do that reading and to take some notes and then to actually write out uh, kind of my, my, my webinar outline based on all that knowledge and then study it right beforehand because I, I find that I retain it a lot better, at least at this age, I find it, I retain it better if I do it right at the, the last minute uh, as it works out. But I mean, I do the same thing uh, for clients. I, I want to learn as much as I can about them before I go on site with them. Um, so that's uh, reading documents about them, trying to memorize the org chart. Uh, I think that in my circumstance, it's probably less important to, to have a firm grip on that org chart than you probably need to have uh, for your job. But uh, I think it still comes down to what's the goal? What's, you know, to, to steal something from, paraphrase from, from what you say, what are you, what are you hiring the learning to do? What are you looking for in terms of uh, what do you need to learn this for? And I think that's going to guide you in the source you use and, and how you, uh, you particularly choose to learn that information. Dennis, any, um, any tips that you have on better accelerating and things like that? Yeah, I think it's, you, you may want to 
kind of look back to how you learned best when you were in school. And because there are all these cool apps out there that will help you memorize things or do flashcards or, you know, and, and then also just figure out what, you know, if you're a text person, what do you, what do you look to? There's some cool things happening with eBooks and eBooklets. And as you mentioned, blogs are great, um, especially where somebody does like, you know, 10 things you need to know about X. Those can be highly useful. Video sites like lynda.com and things like that, incredibly useful. And then I would say the other thing, Tom, that we sometimes forget about is is the online, you know, reaching out to people online, either becoming part of online discussions or, uh, you know, some of the online question and answer discussion sites. Um, so those, I think, are all really good. But I, I think the best tip is really that thing where you sit down and, and say, okay, how do I learn best? What do I need to know? What's my time frame for doing that? What tool or tools work best. And for me, you know, like I say, if you have that long commute, then audio just becomes such an interesting option uh, as a way to, to learn new things. Yeah, and I guess my best tip is, I'll, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, which is try to gain an appreciation of whether you can trust the source that you're, that you're looking for. Um, you know, blogs are great, but is the blogger an expert or is he just someone who, or he or she, someone who just likes to talk about something? The list, the 10 things. Um, some of those 10 things articles are really uh, are really useful. However, some of them, are, I think they, they, they are called listicles these days, uh, are, are kind of put out there by, uh, by professional writers who don't know much about the topic, um, who have gotten up to speed very quickly themselves to write something and they generally show uh, you know, even, I will usually look when I do research and, and look for a white paper and see if there's a white paper out there, but I also take white papers with a grain of salt too because because nine times out of ten, those white papers are written by vendors who want to give you just enough information so that you have to come back and ask them for more help and uh, and not really give you everything that you really need about it. So I, I guess I'll just say, be careful. Use your best judgment when you're looking at uh, at the source and make sure that it's something that uh, that you can trust. Because um, uh, you know, once n- now that everybody's offering things, the level of quality management uh, and quality control it falls to you. You have to be able to judge the quality of that content that you're looking at. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. I was laughing the other day when several people, clearly accidentally, sent reply to all emails to an email that clearly the sender, who happened to be Tom, did not expect everyone to reply to all to. I mentioned to Tom that uh, reply all etiquette might be a good topic for this segment, and he agreed. So Tom, many of us have been using email for more than 20 years. Why do you think people still struggle with when and how to use that dreaded reply all function? So you use the word struggle, and that 
that's a challenge for me because struggle to me seems to be the wrong word. And I, I tried to decide whether I wanted to make this a rant or just sort of throwing my hands up in, in defeat saying, I have no idea. I'm continuously mystified why people continue to hit reply all. I'm not convinced that it's an accident. Uh, I'm not convinced that there's a struggle. I'm not sure why it happens. Uh, you know, there's two buttons. There's reply and there's reply all. Your brain has to make a decision to press one of those buttons. And, you know, it reminds me a, a, a number of years ago, um, the State Department had an issue where um, an email went out that went to a lot of people on the ma- on the State Department, uh, were State Department employees, and somebody pressed reply all and replied to something and then someone else decided to press reply all to say hey you shouldn't be replying all to that and then the other person replied all and said oh yeah well what's it to you and then by the end of it all it created such a storm of reply alls that it literally shut down the state department's email system for a period of time and they wound up they wound up shutting off reply all either for a period of time or for all i know it may still not be working but i just don't get that it doesn't make sense to me why that happened in the first place. I ask a quick question before I hit reply all. The question is, who needs to see my answer to this email? If it truly is everyone, then hitting reply all is the right choice. I try to limit that because you're sending out multiple copies of an email and you're just sending, you're just proliferating the junk of email that goes out there. But, but if it's the right choice, it's the right choice. If it's just the sender or maybe it's a subset of the people who are originally on that email, then I press reply. I add in any email addresses I need to add. I, I, to me, it's a simple question. I, I, that's why I'm so mystified by this. I think there are other ways to solve this problem. I know that Sperry has a great add-in for Outlook. It's called, uh, I think it's the Reply All Monitor, that when you hit Reply All, it comes back with a message that says, did you really mean to reply all? And so that it acts as our technological conscience uh, when it asks us. I, I think it's a great tool. Um, and, and then I know that some companies have actually decided to either gray out or eliminate completely that Reply All button. I'm not sure how, I'm, I'm sure it's absolutely successful, but I don't know if that's the best response. Um, it, it just kind of makes people less productive if they actually have to fill in all the names when they hit the reply. I'm not sure I know the answer to this. I, I'm still mystified by why it happens. Dennis, what do you think? Well, I, I got to agree with you. I mean, it seems like that if you if you think about what you're doing with email, then then you can figure out who it needs to go to and why and whether everybody needs to see it. And I, I think it all comes back to what I always used to say. You need to to put yourself in the place of the person who receives your email and say, why is this person is getting hundreds of emails a day? Why do I need why do I need to send another email into their inbox? And I think it's fairly straightforward to, I mean, I do the opposite of what, what you were saying, Tom, where I would just do the reply all and then delete the people who don't need to get it before I send it. That's pretty straightforward. I don't know whether the, you know, I like the thing and maybe, you know, Microsoft and Gmail and other people should do this that just throws up that message that says, hey, you hit reply all, do you really mean to do that? Um, and so, so you do think about it. I don't know that the, you know, banning it really works because, you know, we all have workarounds. It seems to me you just forward and add all the same people and you end up at the same place. <laughs> so it's not like you can really stop because people figure out workarounds. I, I just think that probably it's it's one of those things where, 
I mean, just it seems like you're just it just. I mean, everybody laughs at you when you when you do the reply all. I mean, it's embarrassing. If you don't realize it's embarrassing, you you should know that that people are laughing at you when you do that, and and we all get a kick out of it, and like you know be talking like oh did you see the person who sent the reply all you know when somebody was leaving the company or you know whatever where it just you just it's sort of silly so you look foolish you look like you don't understand technology well um but obviously that hasn't shamed people but so i think probably um you know i would say if you get people to think carefully about what you want to have you know do one to others email inboxes what you would like to have done to your email inbox you know some sort of golden rule like that may help on this and now it's time for our parting shots that one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends tom take it away well, this um, article that I found this past week was particularly on point for an issue that, that came up while we were on vacation, and actually it's come up before in hotel rooms when I've wanted to watch a show that was on my iPad, but I really wanted to watch it on the, the television in my in my hotel room, and I really don't want to bring my Apple TV with me to do it, but I've got my little Google Chromecast that I can easily cast from, from there. But uh, the problem that I have with the Chromecast is that uh, it, it really doesn't work with hotel Wi-Fi because most hotel Wi-Fi has a, has a splash screen that you have to go and sign up or at least you know acknowledge that you're accepting their free Wi-Fi and you can't do that with Google Chromecast and so I was happy that the How To Geek came up with a page uh, that how can I use Google Chromecast in my hotel room um, I can tell you there's two answers one is a complicated but ultimately very successful way and the other way is the to, for me the easier response which is to get a wireless hotspot, a MiFi card like I have, um, and then just completely bypass the hotel Wi-Fi uh, entirely. But it's a great article. Um, teach you how to use Google Chromecast in your hotel room so you can watch all the TV you want on your TV. And mine is from the Simplicity is Bliss blog, and it's deceptively simply uh, titled Better Conference Calls. And so it's great because he summarizes uh, an article in The Atlantic that that gave the stats on what people are actually doing during conference calls. You know, 65% are doing other work, 63% sending emails, 55% eating or food, you know, that sort of thing, which is basically confirms what we all think when we're on conference calls. But he gives uh, five tips for better conference calls. Two of them, I think, are are really interesting. Um, And and something, one I do and one that I I think I'm going to start doing. And so the one I do is I'm... If it's my conference call, I'm really diligent about having an agenda uh, that I give to people ahead of time with any reference material they need. The other thing that that I'm thinking about doing, because I really do think this makes sense, is starting uh, 15 minutes past the hour. So instead of having the nine o'clock call uh, that you wait five to ten minutes for everybody to get on, uh, you you have it at nine fifteen or three fifteen or whatever, and that way you give people time to get from their last call or the last meeting to your call, and then maybe if it gives them you know ten to fifteen minutes to to prepare for your conference call. So I I'm really I haven't done this, but I'm really tempted to do the uh, starting at fifteen minutes past the hour approach to conference calls. I think that's a great idea, and I will say that from that survey, the uh, the percentage of people who are using the restroom during a conference call is truly, 
truly disturbing. So that uh, wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, available on our show notes blog at tknreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to archives of all of our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question that you'd like answered, a topic that you want covered, if you just want to talk to us, send us an email at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet on Twitter. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.